I don't have a great story about that song, but boy, oh boy, is that a wonderful, wonderful song. And I am so grateful for um, the leadership bringing it to us today and for our opportunity to celebrate the fact that the Lord does surround His people. Amen. What a wonderful and um, valuable lesson that is to be reminded of this morning. We are um, going to be taking the next step in our journey with our walk through Jesus' life. We've been going through a series of lessons, if you've not been with us, that's entitled The Life of Christ. Over the course of three different sections, we're looking at different stories from the life of Christ chronologically. And we come today to the story of the transfiguration of Jesus. It's a story that often gets kind of, well, just footnotes. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It's not a story that we usually give a lot of time in in lessons and and Bible classes and in sermons to, but It's one of those times that I think provides some really rich insight, and I think there are some great lessons and things that we can learn from this particular story. In this story, Jesus is going to kind of pull the veil away from our eyes in a couple of different ways. Uh, He literally pulled the veil away from the eyes of those who were there at that moment witnessing this scene and, and, and being a part of it firsthand, but in an extended way, he kind of pulls the veil away from our eyes as well and allows us to see him more clearly, allows us to see God more clearly, and I think allows us to understand his message to us in a more clear way as well. I've given some handouts, and hopefully everybody's gotten one of those. If you did not, I apologize that we missed you, but there are some available back on the table. For those of you in the balcony, the table in the center there, um, if you did not pick up one of the synoptic readings. Uh, What we've done is we've gone through and looked at the two different places in the New Testament where the story of Jesus's transfiguration takes place and we've put the scriptures together so that in one reading you get everything that Matthew said as well as everything that Luke said. If you have that paper before you, you can look at that real quickly and notice that some of it's in italics and that which is in italics is from the gospel of Luke. That which is in standard font is from the Gospel of Matthew. As I read this story, I'd invite you to read along, follow along on your own page as we hear the story of the transfiguration as told by these two writers. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. As he was praying, he was transfigured in front of them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light, and they appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and those who were in a deep sleep, when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and they saw the two men that were standing with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you want, we will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he was saying. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. And after the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Don't tell anyone about the vision. Until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. It's truly a beautiful story. It's an amazing story. If you try to put yourself in the scene and really envision what this would have been like to to be there with Peter and James and John, to be able to witness Jesus Christ in this transformed figure, his his, his face glowing like the radiant sun, his, his clothes like the whiteness of light, and they're standing beside him 
Elijah and Moses, two of the most central figures in the entire Old Testament, two of the most important people in the history of God's people. And here they are together in this conversation. And Peter, James, and John are able to witness this scene unfold before them. It really is an amazing thing. And of all the stories in Scripture that I think would have been very interesting to see, this certainly would have been one of them for me. I think this would have been an amazing thing to behold. I think that the thing that would be most true is the line that says, when the disciples heard this, they fell down and were terrified. I think if anything describes how I would be feeling witnessing this before me, it would probably be the word terrified. This morning, what we're going to do is take this story and look at it in three distinct parts. Three distinct parts, and they all circle around the perspective of the disciples. The perspective of these disciples who are watching this scene unfold. First of all, you have that portion of which they were asleep. Peter and the other apostles asleep. And during that time, we learn something about God. Then there is the moment that they awaken. And in the moment that they're waking up, we learn something about Jesus. And then there is the time when full awareness hits them. For, for you and I today, that's when you get that second or third cup of coffee and you finally start to shake the cobwebs out and realize what's going on around you. They get to that moment of awareness. And in that moment of awareness, we're going to learn something about the, the Bible, something about the story of God and his people. Being asleep, Peter was asleep. The God-following world has been asleep. And if we're not careful, we today are in this same kind of sleep. At the beginning of the story, the apostles are in deep sleep. Now, there's a lot of contention, there's a lot of question. Was this a natural sleep? Did they just, were they just tired and dozed off? Or was this something that, that God kind of lulled them into a sleep? And, and I'll leave that conjecture for you. It is an interesting thought. But they were asleep. They were asleep, and their sleep is kind of a fitting metaphor for humanity. Because, you know, for a long time, the God-following world, all the people that profess to have a relationship with God, have in many ways kind of been asleep to who He truly is. And if we're not careful, I think we could be guilty of this same kind of slumber today. Not being fully aware of who God truly is. For generations up to this moment in the story, God has tried and unsuccessfully tried to reveal more fully who He is to His people. Yet, all through the history of the Old Testament, we see the people failing to truly fathom God for who He is. They paint God in the colors of their palette. They press God into the mold of their making. They force Him to fit into the expectations that they have for what God is and how God acts and what God wants and what God does. There's many passages that talk about this idea, but these two are particularly poignant to me. In, in Psalm 50, how painful it must have been for God to, to speak these words. When you spoke and did things, I kept silent, but you thought I was exactly like you. But now I will speak out and lay my case before you. God is saying, you keep painting me in your picture. You keep painting me your way. You keep picturing me the way you want me to be. You keep thinking that I am exactly what you think I am. But you refuse to wake up and see who I really am. Isaiah 42, a similar thought. God says, I have kept silent for ages. I have remained quiet. I have restrained my tongue. But I'm groaning like a woman in labor. 
Listen, listen, I am gasping and panting. God is saying, I'm becoming frustrated with the fact that you don't get who I am. I'm getting frustrated with the fact I've been patient, I've been waiting, I've been restrained, but you refuse to wake up and see me, God says, for who I truly am. And during this slumber of the apostles, the sleepy apostles, we see something of God revealing himself in this beautiful, magnificent picture of his son, revealed in the, in the glory that is his, speaking to these two others. And it really flies in the face of what we think about God. In some ways, it's not the way we picture God. And that's happening when we start to understand why is it that these are meeting on this hilltop? Why Moses? Why Elijah? Why would Jesus have this time with them? What is the purpose of this meeting? And as strange as it sounds, well... I think that there's something very important taking place that is not only for the benefit of the apostles, not only for the benefit of us later, but for the benefit of Jesus Christ himself. You know, it doesn't fit our picture of God that God would want to or need to or or desire to feel comfort from people. Jesus is on the precipice of what's going to be the most devastating moment of his entire life. He knows his end is coming. He knows he's going to the cross. He knows what is awaiting him. He knows what his future looks like. And he's hurting. And he's scared. In fact, he says in John chapter 12 and verse 27, Jesus says, my soul is deeply troubled. He was scared. He was human. We don't think of God incarnate in terms of true incarnation. We don't think the fact that God came down and he experienced what we experience. And my friends, when we are facing the point of death, we are scared. When Jesus Christ faced the point of death, he was scared. To whom did he go for comfort? To whom did he go for for comfort? Well, he had his apostles. His apostles he turned to constantly and consistently. And over the course of many weeks, we're going to see him continuing to lean more into his apostles and and talk more intimately with them and spend more time with them. But, But let's be honest, throughout Scripture, they continue to prove themselves to be pretty lousy comforters. I mean, in this story and another one where they really need, Jesus needs them the most. They keep falling asleep. Literally. Falling asleep. We don't think of God desiring comfort from us. But here in this moment, that's exactly what we have. You know, it's interesting that he calls Moses and Elijah. It's interesting that he calls Moses and Elijah because these two offer some interesting ideas in this this meeting of friends. There's some interesting ways in which these two people could really provide benefit for Jesus at this moment in his life. There's some really interesting reasons why these two could really be of true comfort for Jesus at this moment of his life. We will never fully understand all the things that were going through Jesus' mind, nor should we pretend that we could. But let's think together a little bit about why these two might have been so beneficial to him. Jesus is about to make the biggest stand against power he's ever made. He's going to literally take on the Roman government, the Jewish government, all in one big swoop. He's going to understand a betrayal and and a 
a, a, a retreat, a surrender, a runaway, a fear from his friends like nothing else. And he's going to go through an excruciating death. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, I'm sorry, 34, Moses finds himself at the end of his life. Moses is a very old man at this time, and you'll remember from the story of Moses that Moses was a great leader. Moses was a great man, a revered man, but Moses was a flawed man. Moses was a man who had some deep problems, and, and because of some of those sins and missteps, because of some of those things that God, he had done against God, God had already told him, you will not see the promised land. You're not going in. You're not going in. Your punishment for all the times that you've rebelled and not listened to me is that you're not going to see the promised land. But at the end of, end of Moses' life, God relents. And God takes Moses up to the top of Mount Nebo, right there overlooking the Jordan River. And from that, look, that mountaintop peak, you can see the, the land of Israel laid out before him. And in my mind's eye, I can just picture this old... Man, Moses, the last moments of his life, breathing his last breaths on this planet, held in the arms of God, who lovingly comforts him with, right over there, Moses, right on that hill, I'm going to build Jerusalem. And on the top of that hill within that city, I'm going to put my temple. And right over here in this river, is someday where my son's going to come down and, and be baptized and begin his ministry. And right over there on that plane, can you just see God explaining to Moses what he's going to do? And somewhere along the process, Moses falls off into sleep to never awake. One of the most peaceful, beautiful moments of, of passing from this life to the other that I think has ever been recorded why do you think that Moses would be a good person right now in this moment to talk with Jesus? Why do you think that this is a person who really could relate? Because I can see, in my mind's eye, a reversal of those places. God, whom, lest we forget, Jesus is God, who once held Moses and showed him what he was going to do, now himself, in flesh, is scared at the point of death to have Moses hold him in his arms and say to him, see this sleeping Peter right here that doesn't look like much? He's going to do some great things. You see these apostles here who, they're going to run away from you and they're going to be scared, but they're going to do some great things. And maybe Moses was able to talk to him about the plans to come. Maybe Moses was able to remind him of what Jesus knew about his mission. Maybe Moses was able to be there to comfort him with thoughts, even so far as to talk about us today, the church, and someday what the church would do, and to remind Jesus, this is why you're doing it. How beautiful. The one who comforted Moses is comforted by Moses at the very point of his death. And then there's Elijah, the other friend. The other friend's important too because in Elijah we have a man who spent his entire life as an outcast. A man who was routinely uh, hated by everyone and someone who was constantly finding himself opposed to power. Standing up against kings, standing up against rulers. Elijah was a man who felt the desperate, 
desperate pains of being betrayed by your friends, of being left alone, of, of not having anyone to support you. He understood what it was like to be the only one who seemed faithful. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah, he's been betrayed, he's been abandoned, his people have forsaken him, he feels like he's the only one left. He had just come from an interaction with the king where he had stood up to him, and he finally said, you know what, God, forget it, I'm just ready to go home, I'm done, I'm the only one left, and this is just too overwhelming, it's just too terrible, it's just, I just want to die. I just want to die. And at that moment, God came to him in that still, small voice, and gave him the comfort to keep on going, gave him the strength to keep on going, gave him the, the, the resilience to endure the hardship that was before him. Couldn't you see that, Elijah? Looking into the eyes of Jesus, Jesus knowing that he's going to be betrayed, Jesus knowing that he's going to have to stand up to power, Jesus knowing all the things that are coming and how difficult it's going to be for Elijah to put an arm on his shoulder and be able to say to him, I know. And you remember how you whispered to me, let me encourage you. The still, small voice that encouraged Elijah became Elijah's still, small voice to encourage God incarnate. And why that matters is this. Because that's not how we think about God. We think that if we picture God and wanting and, and, and receiving from us some kind of comfort benefit, that we, we lessen him and we weaken him and we cause him to be somehow shamefully needy. But the reality is God's not concerned about those worries. God's story with mankind has been from the very beginning, from the very moment he created mankind, was that he wanted a relationship with us, a deep, loving, engaging relationship with us. All the ways that we try to make it something that it's not. He continues to show us the simple beauty of a God who wants so badly to be in a relationship with you that even the death of his own son wasn't too much to pay. I'm not saying that Jesus needed Moses. He wasn't going to make it if it wasn't for Elijah. But I am saying that there's genuine comfort here. There's genuine connection here. There's genuine love here. There's genuine benefit here. And my friends, the reality is that every single one who comes to Christ and knows Him in a, in a loving, saving relationship has the opportunity to be benefited and be a benefit. To join the meeting of the friends. Second, they're starting to wake up. Peter and the apostles are starting to wake up, rub their eyes, look around, and suddenly see this scene that's been taking place in front of them while they've slept through it. Here they see these two, Elijah and Moses. I've always wondered, how do they know? Do they have like name tags? You know, it's like, hello, my name is Elijah. Um, but, but they did, they knew, they knew. This is Elijah and this is Moses. They understood that. They recognized that immediately. And they see Jesus in this form like they've never seen him before. This glorified form shining like, 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 like the sun. It's not really unlike what we see in Exodus chapter 34 when Moses would go up on the mountain and would spend time with God. It said that the radiance of God was such that when he would come back down off the mountain, he glowed. Residual radiance. 
When he was around God, it rubbed off on him a little bit. This isn't just a little bit rubbing off. This is God shining out in such an overpowering way that Moses and Elijah are also gathering up that radiant glory, that they too are shining. They're reflecting the glory of Jesus. And here these apostles who are asleep wake up. They see Jesus transfigured. They see these two men that they admire so much from history. And everybody's glowing with the glory of of, of Christ in that moment. And I got to tell you, I think it probably made an impression that lots of long walks and campfire discussions and late night talks and early morning chats that they'd already had with Jesus. Suddenly in this moment, there was something very real about this guy. Somehow this was a moment that Jesus shattered a lot of the thoughts and expectations just when they think they have him figured out. He shows them a side of him that's so much greater than they could have possibly imagined. In the earliest days when his, when his birth was being announced, he was called Emmanuel, God with us. And in this moment, in such a powerful way, that message must have resounded with them. And here's the thought for you and me. We weren't on that mountain that day. But do we recognize the truth of that moment in our own lives? That we serve a God who put on flesh and loved us, who came down to be a creator amongst his creation, to, to be a father with his children, to be a king with his subjects, and to connect with us in a way that would be beautiful and powerful and meaningful, and he wants that with us. You know, he could have done so much better. So much of the Bible story I look at and I go, God, you could have done so much better. Jesus would say that he could call 10,000 angels And I got to tell you, what I read about angels, they're a whole lot better than humans. And he needed comfort. He could have called 10,000 angels to be his comfort. And they they could have sung him beautiful angelic songs and brought him peace that we could never understand with their, their beauty and their radiance and their glory and their sinlessness and all of that. But he chose to gather around himself a couple of fishermen. And when he really needed help, he called back Elijah and Moses because he wanted to reflect his glory in them. And my friend, he wants to reflect his glory in you. He wants to reflect his glory in you. When Elijah was glowing and Moses was glowing, nobody stopped and thought, wow, Elijah and Moses are glowing. No, everybody understood. Elijah and Moses are glowing with the glow of Jesus. And when you go through your everyday life and you go into your workplace and you go into your school and you go into your community and you are living Christ embodied through you, you are living the light, you are shining the light, you are being the example. No one is saying, look at that person who's so great, at least they shouldn't be because what the Bible says is that we should do our good works before men that they may see those good works and glorify our Father who's in heaven. What's it saying? You and I are there to radiate the glory of Jesus Christ. In the same way that he illuminated Elijah and Moses on that day, he wants to illuminate you. And he wants to make it so that when you go through your everyday life, you are shining the light of Jesus everywhere we go. The glory of Jesus rubs off on us and becomes aware to other people. And I ask, how does that happen? How does that happen? What happens when we spend time with him? That's how it happens. All too often we want to have this magical formula. We want to have some kind of a way, a a step. If I do these 12 things, I'll connect with Christ. Christ doesn't make it that complicated. He says, spend time with me. Prayer and in the word and in study and meditation, it's not hard, it's not complicated, but it's something that requires us to dedicate to it. 
There was a time in the book of Acts when the early followers of Jesus, Jesus' good friends, were called into a court, and they were, they were on trial for proclaiming Jesus. Basically, they said, stop doing it, and they said, we're not going to stop doing it. Stop doing it, they're not going to stop doing it. So they had this big problem, and they were just amazed through this whole process. These rulers, these judges were saying, these are just... These are just hilljack, they're just fishermen. These guys never went to school. They don't have any, where is all this power? Where is all this passion? Where is this beautiful, and it says, oh. And they answered their own question. You remember what they said? They remembered these men had been with Jesus. When you and I go into our workplace, into our world, into our community, into our schools, And people see Jesus in us. It's evidence of, it's reflective of the fact that we've spent time with him and he's made us different, made us better, made us radiate his glory. Finally, they're awake, completely awake, rubbed all the sleepy out of their eye, and they finally start to see everything clearly. And immediately, the thought of mankind goes to praise and glory and adoration. And that's a wonderful thing, but all too often it's misplaced. Peter looks around and he says, hey, there's Elijah, the pillar of the prophets. Here's Moses, the the author of the law. Let's make a tabernacle. Tabernacle was a tent. Before they had the temple, they had a tabernacle. It was a little tent that they would use to worship. And wherever they traveled in the wilderness, they would have this tabernacle. And they said, let's make a temple, a tabernacle to Moses. And let's make a temple, a tabernacle to Elijah. And we'll make a temple, a tabernacle to Jesus. You see, in their minds, they they were doing a good job because they were elevating Jesus up to the same level as these two. They were saying, in essence, Jesus, you're as worthy as the prophets. You're as worthy as the, as the, as the, uh, the law. You're as worthy as Elijah. You're as worthy as Moses. But they missed it. You remember Peter, it says in Luke, he didn't know what he was saying. Well, he proved it right here because he really didn't know what he was saying. In Malachi chapter 2, verses 4 and following, it says, Remember the law of my servant Moses. The decrees and the law I gave him for Israel. I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What's he saying? Even in the Old Testament, the prophecy was, even in the Old Testament, the promise was, the one who's coming is greater than the prophets. The one who's coming is greater than the lawgivers. So to Peter, it made sense. You get a temple, you get a temple, everybody gets a temple. Oprah would have been thrilled. This is the kind of thought that he had because he thought he was bringing all of them up equally. But there was a voice that came from heaven. And the voice didn't say, hear him and him and him. The voice said, no, 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 no. No, 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 Peter. Jesus, you hear him. Where Peter thought he was elevating Jesus to the same level as the law and the prophets. God was saying, no, 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 you have it all backwards. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. The author of Hebrews writes it this way, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his very Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. Here it is. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. The exact representation of God was not found in the law. The exact representation of God was not found in the prophets. 
Those were good pictures, but they were, it was like looking through a dirty glass that was covered up with the well-intending fingerprints of all the writers and all the people and all the thoughts that had been processed through that. And it wasn't until Jesus came that all of that could be cleaned away. Paul says it, but their minds were made dull. For, in the, for even to this very day, the veil remains when the old covenant is read. It's not been removed because only Christ takes the veil away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But when anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. What's he saying? Try as we might to understand the Old Testament. If we don't see the Old Testament through Jesus, we're not going to understand it. There's a veil. There's a covering. There's something that we can't comprehend. We can't understand the law perf- well, perfectly, forget it, well, or the prophets well, until we have the lens of Jesus Christ to see it. Because they have always been talking about him. The law and the prophets were written about him. The law and the prophets were written to get us ready for him. He is the key. He is the lens. He is the way that everything else is understood. In Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and following, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested to by the law and the prophets. Notice that, attested to. The righteousness of God is through faith in Christ Jesus. Early in Jesus' ministry in John chapter 1 and verse 45, a man named Philip comes to meet Jesus and believes that he's the Messiah. He goes to his friend Nathanael and he says to him, We have found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and the prophets wrote about, and he is Jesus. Jesus would say in John 5, You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. But these scriptures testify about me. Here's my point. I'll summarize it quickly. Everything written before Jesus was written to get us ready for Jesus. And everything written before Jesus cannot be fully understood without looking through the lens of Jesus to go back and make sense of it. It wasn't that the law and the prophets were equal and Jesus came along and completed it. They were all ready to point us to him. And that is a very distinct and important Different. Some 351 times the Old Testament pointed to Jesus. 187 of those were in the prophets. 44 of them in the law. And everything in, in the Old Testament is trying to make sense of how Jesus would come, as he said, not to abolish it, not to get rid of it, not to trash it, but to fulfill it. Play arrow. There you go, Bishop. There's my Greek for the day. Every lesson I have to have one Greek word that I terribly mispronounce because it gives us something all week long to fight about. Pleero. And, uh, and this word fulfill means to overflow, to cascade, to, to drop an ocean's worth into a teacup. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that you just cap it off. It means that you take it to such overwhelming levels that it's unbelievable. And that's what Jesus came to do with the law to bring it to overwhelming levels in him. Bottom line. The bottom line that is this moment on the mountain can really show us a lot about God. It can really show us a lot about Jesus. It can really show us a lot about how we need to read our Bibles. It shows us a lot about God because we understand that God has such a Desperate and and, and strong desire to connect with and be with people that he doesn't let anything get in the way of pursuing a relationship with us. 
It tells us about Jesus' relationship to us because he desires to illuminate our lives, to radiate his glory through our lives, to live on through our lives today. And it shows us something about Scripture. Because in Scripture, we get a better understanding of all that stuff that for so long has befuddled us and made us confused and we can't understand it. And and you've had this experience. You're reading the Old Testament. You're reading through the prophets. You're reading through the law. You're reading through the poetry of it and you're trying to make sense of it. It doesn't seem to make sense of it. And it's not until you are introduced to Jesus that suddenly it all becomes a little bit more clearly in focus. It's a lot to come out of one little story on a mountain. But I think each one of those is a lesson that's valuable to us today. It's been valuable to us in our preparation this week. And I think it'll be valuable to you moving forward in your own relationship to God. I don't have a formal challenge for you this week, but I have a heartfelt invitation for you this week. If you connected with Scripture this past week in a more meaningful way, a more intentional way, then I want you to repeat that. And I want you to see if God doesn't show up and show out in some beautiful ways as you interact with him in Scripture. If this past week wasn't one that saw you dedicate to a deeper connection with Scripture and prayer, then lucky for you, today's a new day starting a new week. And I encourage you to do just that. I encourage you to, as God said from heaven, hear him. Hear him. Him. Hear the love that he has for you. Hear the the desperation that he has that he could not imagine an eternity without you in it. Imagine a love that is so great that would drive him from the wonders of heaven to the mundane realities of earth. From all that he had and putting it aside, giving it up, coming and living our lives, even to the point of death, even death on a cross was not too much for him to pursue a relationship with you. And this morning, I want you to evaluate where you are in that relationship. I want you to think about where you are in that relationship. Maybe it is that you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior many years ago. Maybe you put him on in baptism many years ago. Maybe you've been faithfully walking with him. Then then glory be to him because of the wonderful blessing he's in your life. And what a great opportunity you have to take the next step in your journey with Jesus this week. But if you've never started on that journey, if you've never made him the Lord of your life, we'd sure love to talk to you about that. Because he makes clear what the the route to his um, family is that we recognize that sin's what keeps us away from Him, that we recognize that He's the answer to our sin, that He paid a debt on a cross that we couldn't pay. He invites us to make Him the Lord of our life, to put Him on in the waters of baptism, to have our sins cleansed, and to walk a new life with Him. This morning, if we can help you in any way, we want you to know that we would be honored to do so. Our leaders meet in the back of this room, and if we can help you, won't you come and make that known as we stand and sing.